Hey guys, I just want to tell you all before we get started with Leland Scalar interview that um, the audio here is going to be a little bit uh, muffled on my end. It's, it just happens to me, not on Leland's side. Um, I know what the problem is. I resolved it. I am working with another company that will give me a perfect audio. Um, so uh, please don't let my audio interfere in this amazing conversation I had with Leland Scalar. He's a wonderful guy. I think you will enjoy this, this awesome interview. And um, here we go. Like many of you, we battle depression during life's ups and downs. Music has always been the one thing that we could rely on to get us through the tough times that we all face. Follow us on our journey as we discuss the healing power of music, interview bands, break down genres, review band biographies, and more. This is the When Words Fail Music Speaks podcast with Blake Mosley and James Cox. And now, the When Words Fail Music Speaks interview. Hey everybody, welcome back to When Words Fail Music Speaks. I am your handicapped host, James Cox, and I'm so like delighted today to uh, do this interview with Mr. Leland Scalar. Uh, first, let me tell you about him. Uh, Leland Scalar has been around all around the world and then some. He has played bass for who's who in the music catalog industry, including but not limited to George Strait, Clint Black, Phil Collins, Leonard Cohen, David Crosby, Neil Diamond, along with some many more artists. Leland is in the band entitled The Immediate Family, which has a, has an album under the same name, The Immediate Family, uh, releasing on August 27, 2021, in a few weeks, in which they are going to have a listening party at the, at the Grammy Museum downtown Los Angeles before the release date and answer your questions about the album. We are thrilled to talk to him about his music and his life. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Leland Scalar. How are you doing, sir? Man, James, I am so happy to be here. I've been looking forward to talking to you, so this is pretty cool. And one of the best things is the, one of the finest keyboard players I've ever worked with in Los Angeles. His name is Jim Cox. Really? Yeah. Nice. He's, he's nice. a staple of the L.A. studio scene and touring. He's toured with Lyle Lovett and different people. Um, and uh, he's amazing. So it's it's nice to meet another Jim Cox. Nice, yeah, because uh, yeah, because Cox is a very uh, sp- uh, spread out name. Because I haven't I haven't met a Cox besides besides my family uh, in a in a while. Because I knew there's a hockey player named Cox, and that's 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 all I know. You know, I'm just hockey and hockey in my family. So it's well, it's, it's good that we're out there. There's Ronnie Cox to the actor. Who was in Deliverance and and uh, all those all those movies? RoboCop. He's a fabulous uh, actor. He's uh, also a country artist. Oh, nice. He lives out he lives out here in, in Southern California. Right, right. Nice, nice. Um, uh, uh, yeah. So okay, so um, we're just slowly getting out of this pandemic. Hopefully, um, has the pandemic ever slowed you down like creating new music? Because I know you're home and you. Like like the Creed stuff, so um, has it slowed you down at all, or did or like was it like a? Yeah, what it did was it it it's like it didn't stop me, but it certainly put me on a, a lateral movement, um, because all the stuff that I had in my book that I was planning on doing all got canceled immediately upon you know the, as of you know March of last year, 
Uh, and I was sitting around suddenly looking for the first time in, in a half a century at an empty book. And uh, so I, I, I just started to try to think of things I could do to uh, make myself still, still feel viable and, uh, and busy. And it's actually turned out to be like one of the busiest year and a halfs I've ever spent. Now, a great deal of it was not income, so it wasn't like, like the work I would have had. But it was incredibly fulfilling, and, uh, and I've felt very engaged all year. And uh, fingers are crossed for the future. I mean, things start to get going, and then they people go crazy, and then they have to back up again and stuff. So I just I just was watching the news, and they said Garth Brooks has just canceled the rest of his tour. Oh no! Um, yeah, he's he's had to do that, and um, some stuff I was supposed to be doing that was booked has now been canceled. Uh, or postponed. So, you know, but in terms of during the course of this past year and a half, um, I did, um, I, I took the opportunity to do things so that I would probably have never had the time to do, which one of them sitting over your right shoulder is th this book. Um, I also started a, kind of inadvertently, but started a YouTube channel. And, uh, and so far, I've got about 166,000 people on the channel and I've, I do a couple of live streams a month and a one-on-one -on -one day with people doing Skype and FaceTimes with them. Um, for the first time in my career, I I've been recording at home. Um, I, I was always in studios or at friends' studios and never felt the need to do it at home. And suddenly I found myself, you know, locked, locked up at home and, uh, but it's been great. I just uh, today I've I've just finished three tracks for Ian Pace from Deep Purple, and uh, he just sent he just sent me another song to do for him. And I'm working on some stuff for some people in New Zealand and Australia and Ireland. So it's and we're getting ready to go in the studio uh, in about a week to do a new album with Susanna Hoffs, who was the singer in the Bangles, and she's doing so. Things are busy. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy, but. Um, more than anything, I'm just concerned for people's well-being. Right. It's it's been I've, I've I've lost a number of people throughout this, and I have other friends that um, have survived, but they're long haulers on this and are dealing with a lot of health issues and stuff. So it's certainly nothing to be taken lightly by any by any means. Yeah. 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 Uh, going back to um, Deep Purple, I find that 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 the album um, Burn is highly underrated. You know. Yeah, and it doesn't get that much love as like say uh, a machine head, you know, because of smoke in the water. Yeah, no, they're yeah. they're great. I've I've always been a fan of Roger Glover and stuff. And we're actually supposed to, if if nothing changes, the last gig we did last year with the immediate family, which has also occupied a huge part of this year for me, um, even though we haven't been able to tour or anything like that, but we've been in the studio working and like you said, in the intro, getting ready to release the new album, yes. which we cut before the pandemic hit. Um, but um, the last gig I played was uh, a thing called the Rock Legends Cruise. Uh, we did that in February of last year. And uh, it was with Nancy Wilson from Heart and Roger Daltrey and all these different artists on it. And the immediate family was on it. And now we're scheduled to do the one this coming February. 
and Deep Purple is going to be on it. So I've been oh, talking yeah. to Ian about that. I said, you know, it's going to be fun just to spend, you know, a few days hanging out together with you guys and stuff. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful about things, but we, we just don't know because we're in kind of such um, unknown territory right. with all of this, even though in terms of the medical side of it, it's not unknown, but we're certainly, I remember as a kid, like when the polio vaccine came out and tetanus and diphtheria and all these things. I mean, the first thing we did when we found out about vaccinations was got them. And right. all of a sudden now there's like this huge amount of people that think there's a conspiracy and all this. So it's putting us so far behind the eight ball in terms of recovering from this. So I, I'm taking every day uh, as a, a day. Um, it's hard to make plans for the future when the plans are subject to people's safety. Right. So yeah. we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, um, because I know in the in the um, um, the the listening party for your album coming out soon, uh, you said you're, y'all are gonna have a have a uh, have all all people wear masks at the at the at the venue. You know, and I think and they have to be vaccinated very, and everything. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's very very smart. You know. Cause yeah. Who knows when this will go away, but hopefully pretty soon, you know. Yeah, well, we we want it that way, and I think that's also the um, the Grammy Museum has their own set of rules for all of this. Okay. So we, you know, we I mean, I, I'm looking forward to sitting on a stage because we're not going to actually physically be playing. Right. Uh, what we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna be on stage uh, with what they're gonna be playing the album for the audience. And we're going to be sitting and talking about it and answering questions and everything. And uh, hopefully um, we'll know by next week if we're going to be able to be doing a, a live stream of it, too, which I will put up on, on social media and, and make the announcements on my YouTube channel and stuff like that. But we're just waiting right now uh, to see whether or not that's going to be technically happening and all that. But fingers are crossed. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I hope that I I hope that's possible, you know, to get out and hear hear your album. Um, so I heard in the previous interview uh, that you are a, that the hospital knows you all too well. Um, as you are never bored. Um, for 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 your leisure time, you like to do yard work, you know, among other things. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, what has been the worst accident that you you've ever received or been a part of? The the worst the worst accident. Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah, that's kind of hard, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've never really, I've never really had, you know, knock on, you know, wood. <laughs> I've, I, I've never really had terrible accidents, but I, I've had, you know, a number of, you know, serious cuts and things like that. But I've never had to wear a cast or, you know, okay. do any have sur- surgeries or a- anything like that. So I feel pretty fortunate that I'm... Uh, uh, so far, I've gotten through life fairly unscathed, um, but lots of like really stupid things, you know, with, you know, the kind of stuff I do is like I'm getting ready to go do like a big gig and I'll end up going out doing some work in the yard and I'll get like a bougainvillea thorn like right in my fingertip right where I play, you know, yeah. so so that every note feels like somebody's stabbing you with an ice pick in your eye kind of thing. But uh but so so far so far uh, I'm I'm still doing pretty good. I'm still ambulatory at this old age and uh, out you know just pissing people off and kicking butt. <laughs> there we go, man. 
Uh, yeah, because I haven't actually had a broken bone, and I don't know. I don't think I've ever had one, you know. But I've had a few skull fractures, you know, because I'm afraid of bees, you know. Mm. And I then just fell backwards down the stairs and then woke up at the hospital. So yeah, I, I get more headaches than I need. Oh, yeah, that's very scary. But I get more headaches than I could care to, you know. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, you know. but but I'm doing fine right now. So. Good. Man, I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so with many string communities out there, uh, many prefer different things from the, their strings. You know, sound, tone, toughness of playability. Uh, as I have known that, um, well, I, I, I want to ask you, um, uh, do you still work with GHS strings? Um, yeah. And could you tell, well, tell us what you look for when you are looking for strings? And why GHS was a perfect fit? Um, I've been with GHS for a very long time. Back when I was first starting, um, I for a while I used um, Pyramid Golds. I think they're out of Germany. And then um, I uh, kind of in the late 60s went over to Rotosound, um, which I thought were great strings. But the issue I had with Rotosound, at least at that time, and I haven't checked them out in years was there was a bit of an inconsistency in their manufacturing so so you might buy a set of strings and three of them are good and one of them would be dead so you'd have to go get another set and you know it's the weirdest business i guess there's a lot of things like this so when you're just starting out that's when you have to pay retail and then suddenly when you're actually making money then everybody wants to give you everything so it's kind of like backwards uh, they should you know give you strings to start out in and then make you pay for them as the more successful you get i know that we have the los angeles music academy here in pasadena where i live and at one point i i gathered up box loads of strings and just took them over and gave them to the bass students over there and just said you know, don't hoard them, but, you know, use them. So a, a number of years ago, I ended up trying uh, GHS. And the thing I found out about that I liked about them is, uh, first off, I'm not a fan of new strings. I really like when strings wear in. I don't look for that real brittle brightness that a new string has. Um, but the thing I found with GHS was they're incredibly consistent um, in their manufacturing. And the minute I put them on, they... Uh, they just have a, a sound that really works for me. It's a, there's a tonality to them, a feel to the strings. Some strings have like a really kind of a, a weird texture uh, to the surface of them that feels like almost like a, a bit of a sandpaper kind of a thing. And the GHS are um, really comfortable for me. But I, I, when I put a new, I'm actually about to restring my main bass, my Frankenstein bass. And, um, when I do it, I'm going to beat the crap out of those strings for a couple of days and uh, and just kind of wear them in. Right. But what I normally the, the, the strings I normally use are a um, super steel GHS super steels in a medium uh, light. Uh, so my the um, the gauges I have are, are a 40, a 58, an 80 and a 102. And I really love 40, anything bigger than a 40 because most strings seem to come with a 45 as a G string. Right. And I like to wiggle uh, a bit in my playing and use vibrato and the 40 really lends itself much more towards that. Um, when I'm using my Dingwall bass, that's a completely other kind of situation because it's got fan fretting and so the neck, the string links are, are not standard. So I get my strings from Dingwall on that. But the... Um, 
the GHS really works well. I've got that on my Warwick uh, signature bass, and I, I, I like that a lot. Uh, it's really funny, though. Uh, a, a dear friend of mine is Jonas Helberg, who yes. played with Mahavishnu Orchestra and all kinds of people, and, and he was uh, a Warwick and Dorsey while I was over there in Germany, too, with along with Steve Bailey, and we formed a little band called Jostle. And uh, he's got a, a line of strings that that's they, I just saw an ad for it today on um, uh, uh, Facebook is where I saw it. Um, so I'm curious to see what he's come up with, because he's a very, um, very anal uh, guy about technical things uh, in terms of the instruments and amps he's designed and things. So I'm, I'm real curious to see what his strings are like. But uh, as of now, GHS is my go to string. A long, a long, a long answer to a short question. Oh, that's fine. That's perfectly fine. Um, it's funny you you, you mentioned Jonas Helberg because I had an interview with Anna Anna Patan and she had nothing oh. but good things to say about her. About him. she just loves him to death, you know. So. Oh, she's the best. She's she is. wonderful. She's they, really, they're really they're nice an amazing, amazing couple, and it's been fun to watch her musical journey um, take place because I've known her now for I don't know. Uh, 10, 10 or 12 years, I think. Yeah. And, and, and watching her when she was first working on her material and stuff. And all of a sudden to see things where she's really blossomed. Right. Uh, it's pretty great. Yeah. yeah. Cause she's been a big supporter of our, our, our podcast. You know, and great. we have nothing but good, great things to say about her. She's really, really nice. And we've been out like about an hour and a half talking and I just had a great time talking to her. Uh, but yeah. it's but it's funny you you mentioned the Frankenstein that you your your Frankenstein base because I have a question about that. Yeah. So I have been on this earth for forty one years now, you know, and uh, I've never seen a base with the bridge all the way back of the base and the position of your pickups. Uh, could you explain like how you came about doing that to to your base and did you look for like a specific style with that? Well, what happened, that, that bass was really kind of an experimental accident. And it's funny that I call it Frankenstein because it really was like body parts. But in reality, Frankenstein was the doctor and then the monster was the other thing. So right. yeah. you know, I, I call it Frankenstein. But yeah. um, what happened was, and I don't know how I ended up with it, but I, I somehow ended up with a 62 precision jazz bass neck. A 1962, um, a 1962 precision neck um, that um, I thought it just feels like a really good neck, but um, I need to do something with it. But I didn't have there was no base attached to it. It was just a neck. Um, there was a company out here in Southern California, and this was back in the uh, around 1973 or four when we did this a company called Charvel that manufactured aftermarket bodies. They did a lot of stuff, but they had these aftermarket uh, base bodies and they weren't that far from where I live. So I, con I contacted them and went out to the factory and I saw this big stack of precision uh, bo bodies, all these really nice alder bodies sitting these blanks. So um, I went through them. I, I, I kind of hung each one from a piece of wire and just tapped them, you know, just to see what the resonance was like. And there was one of them that really had just this beautiful sound to it. So I bought that. Um, then I kind of the go-to place in Los Angeles back in those days was Westwood Music. Uh, and anytime you'd go there, I mean, you'd go in there, 
me like Jackson Brown or Ry Cooter or, you know, the guys from the Eagles. I mean, people would just hang out there because it was like a watering hole for everybody. And they had a room in back where guys could go jam and stuff. And it was Fred Wallachie's store. And but in the repair department, there was a guy named John Carruthers and Carruthers is still a great luthier. But so I, I went and talked to him and I showed him the neck and the body. And I said, let's build a base out of this thing. And uh, so we, we ended up now I've always been a jazz base. Uh, I like the jazz bass neck. I don't I'm not a big fan of precision bases. Right. And I had a 62 jazz bass. So what I did was I took my my old bass in and we made a template off the neck of that, then stripped the frets out of the neck, that that precision neck that I had and we reshaped that neck into a jazz neck configuration. Yeah. Now in doing that, then it came time to refret the bass. And I was walking around the shop and I was looking and I saw these spools of fret wire hanging on the wall. And I said, what's this stuff? And he goes, that's mandolin wire. Oh. And he said, that's the smallest fret wire there is. I said, let's use that. And he went, man, that's, that'll wear out like overnight. That's, there's no, you know, not going to be good. I said, I'll tell you what, let's do it. And if it doesn't work out, then I'll pay you for another refret. Uh, it turned out to be one of the best things I've ever done. Every single bass I have, all my signature bases, everything, all come with mandolin or, or the, thin, the thinnest wire they can, they can get. Because when you're playing, you can lighten up your touch and it can almost feel like if you put a little bit of, you know, pitch shift or something on it, you can make a fretted bass sound like a fretless bass pretty, pretty easily. It's got a beautiful growl to it. Right. Uh, and for chordal things, it's real accurate. But so we resolved the neck and then um, that I was always used to a jazz bass. Um, I decided to, um, the thing was hollowed out for a precision pickup down in the middle of the body, but I wanted to put pickups where the jazz pickups would have normally gone. <clears throat> we decided to go with two, uh, two sets of EMG um, precision pickups. Now, this is when Rob just had started EMG, so these are the very first generation EMGs. But as I was looking at it, I thought, by the nature of the way, you know, an EM, a, a, a precision pickup is you've got, you know, the, the one piece that goes under the G and the D and one piece that goes under the A and the E and they're offset. Well, I thought when I looked at the way Fender had designed them, the, um, the G and the D half of the pickup would normally have been closest to the bridge and the A and the E would have been closer to the neck. And I thought just by the nature of the sonic of the, those strings, I would have reversed it and have the um the the a and the e half closer to the bridge just to add a little more clarity and so so we routed it out where jazz pickups would have gone and then reversed the p pickups and put them in in those positions and then i still had the cavity in the middle of the base where the original precision pickup would have gone but we were running these 18 volts you had two nine volt batteries to run these pickups so we stuck the nine volts in that cavity so we didn't have to route out anything else um and then the bridge on it is a uh, a badass two is is th that model so we put this thing together and just the way the the body lined up and everything lined up we ended up with the bridge really way at the back of the body um almost right at the very edge of the uh, the curve of the of the heel of of the base 
And then I got in, in a hold of uh, Dave Borsoff, who has HipShot, and it's actually got one of the first prototype HipShot, HipShot detuners on the E-string. So it's all these pieces of things that were assembled. And the first time I was with John and we plugged it in, we just looked at each other and went, Whoa. Wow. <laughs> wow. This is amazing. Because uh, yeah. it could have sucked. You know, you don't know. But it turned out to be the bass that I've used on probably 80 to 85% of everything I've recorded uh, since about 1973 or 4 when we built the bass. Then it was, the bass was absolutely just a clean piece of, um, of alder the whole time that, that I had it for years. Well, in 1981, the Dodge, the LA Dodgers won the World Series. Right. And we were asked to go in the studio and record We Are the Queens, We Are the Champions with the Big Blue Wrecking Crew. So we're in the studio, and this was like the day after the, uh, the World Series. And these guys are like hammered, and they're just wanting to like do all these like bar songs and stuff. Going, oh, let's do Fannie Mae and Louie Louie and all this crap that we used to play like at for fraternity parties. Right. And we were having a ball. Well, at the end of the session, they were signing baseballs. Um, for the, all the musicians on Jeff Picaro was playing drums. And I mean, it was like a great lineup of, of players. And so I got a baseball and all that. And I said, hey, why don't you guys sign my bass? And they went, really? Sign your bass? And I said, yeah, sure. So we got out some pens and they, they signed and they were the ones that popped my bass's cherry. Right. And, uh, and uh, so they signed it. Uh, and then that was it for a little while. And then I was on the road with James, a, a couple more people had signed it at that point, but uh, we were doing a gig with James Taylor and Rocky Blyer and Lynn Swan, who at that time were with the Pittsburgh Steelers football team. Uh, they were backstage at a gig and they saw the bass and they went, oh man, baseball players are pussies, you mean <laughs> football players, you know? Yeah. So uh, so they signed the bass and then it just went crazy. And you know? I just had so many people signing and, and I've, you know, and, and, and to have like Larry London and Jeff Picaro and Carlos Vega, a lot of those guys are on it. And Linda Ronstadt, uh, you know, Flaco Jimenez and, and Merle Haggard. But, you know, one of it's cool, like George Lucas signed it and he made said, may the force be with you. And then right next to that, Peter Max, the great artist, Peter Max made a little Saturn. But the problem is, it's been my main base, so I never clear coated it. So some people have been rubbed off and others, you know, have been added. But uh, I started another base like that, with, which was a Yamaha that was built for me that uh, they were trying to build something like the Frankenstein. But it, it's a really good base, but it's not Frankenstein. Right. But it, it's black. And I did that with silver and gold markers. And then once it got really full, I clear coated it. So those are all protected. But I did a lot of old people on there. There's Merle, uh, there's Bob Hope and Milton Berle and Debbie Reynolds and Mel Torme and um, Dick Van Dyke. And, you know, all these people that I would end up doing a gig with them somehow, I would just have them sign it and then I'd go shoot some clear over it. So right. um, they're fun. They're, 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 it's not so much the instruments, it's the history right. uh, to me that's so meaningful. But Frankenstein's still my go-to main base when I uh, go to work. So um, I guess it would be hard. Well, have you ever thought about like, like mass producing it and like, like like getting into like public hands? Oh, well, I guess it would be hard to do because because it's like parts from other, you know. Yeah, I I think it would be. I mean, some I know a couple of people that are making copies 
of it as like on their own. I had a guy show up when, when the immediate family played the Iridium in New York. There was a guy who showed up to show me his copy that he had made of, of Frankenstein. And it was it was really nice. And I have another friend named Ken who's uh, up in uh, like the Silicon Valley area um, in California, who's in the process of building one right now. And we end up uh, like going on Skype and I keep showing him the base and he's like taking notes and stuff like that. Um, but the thing that to me makes it really special is first off, I really labored to find that piece of wood yeah. on it. Also, those pickups ceased to exist years ago. That was the first generation. And one of the reasons that they stopped making them was they uh, eat up nine volt batteries like there's no tomorrow. Okay, yeah. um, where if, I, if I'm like in a really heavy period, I'll go through a set of nine volts a week on it. And, and I carry a, a voltmeter with me when I'm working. And uh, I can notice a bit of a change in the tonality when it gets, when a nine volt hits about eight five or eight six, because normally out of the box, they're about nine three. And, uh, and most people don't want to be that anal about their batteries, but it's kind of like losing, losing the space shuttle because of an O-ring. You know, you've, it's got this little cheap thing in the base that can, to me, takes away some of the beauty of it. So I think it's that aged neck and the, and the body's old. It's never been coated or any of that that makes it unique. Because I've had people for years saying to me, you know, have you ever thought of talking to Fender about maybe making, you know, a, a copy of this and making a signature one? And I've said, you know, well, that would be weird because it's not a Fender bass. It looks like one. It, it, you know, it has a neck that that sort of was once a Fender neck. And stuff. So um, I think it'll it'll just remain its unique little self, and people can go ahead and you know try to make their own versions of it. And I'm sure some of them will turn out really nice, but uh, it, nothing's going to be like. There's players that are, that have played it, and as soon as they play it, they just look at me and they go, "Holy crap, this thing's really good." Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a it's a beautiful piece of lumber. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um... I was talking to, um, we had an interview with Judy Rodman, and, um, mm -hmm. well, okay, backtrack. I was on your YouTube channel, and, and, uh, and I watched one where you took us through a, um, a, a, a studio. Yeah. You know, and you took us all around inside, and he told us all about it. Um, Judy Rodman, who I interviewed, I um, you probably know her, um, and she says 99% of the time, they're not. The, the studio is not adequately set up just right. Um, do you find that to be the case? And, and if you do, um, have you had any like hard times recording in, in a studio that wasn't really well prepared? Um, yeah, uh, it's, it really all kind of comes down to the tech support at the studio. Um, you can buy the best gear in the world, but if you don't have people maintaining it and, and or you, you if you really haven't put the room together properly, um, you can go out and buy a bunch of stuff. But the Sonics may not be good in the room because, I mean, you, you really need to have, you know, audio, in, you know, engineers that know ceiling angles and dead spots and all these different things that come into play. Uh, I know just recently I did a tour of United Studios. Um, in Hollywood, because I was doing um, a, an album project there with this uh, uh, Lori Basilio, this um, Brazilian guitarist. She's just a monster. She's really great. Um, so I did. I got there early and did a, a, a 
a walk through uh, the studio over there. And it's really a great room. Uh, and, and, you know, if you've got a great engineer sitting behind the console, it's great. But at the end of the day, you can go into the best studio in the world. And if you don't have a good engineer, it's not going to be good. And I've gone into people's houses or garages with a great engineer and made great music. Right. Um, so it really, it, 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 it's, it really comes down to, you know, ears and all that stuff. It's not so much, you know, the equipment. It's like having the best bass or the best amp. I mean, some of the stuff I've recorded with, I bought at flea markets, you know, for like 90 bucks, but it works perfect for, for what you need. And, uh, Guys would go, how could you play that thing? I go, listen to it. Sounds great. It's really good. Um, but it really does. I mean, the really great studios in town, really generally, you have no issues at. Um, if you're working at Capitol Records or at, at, at um, East West, which originally was Western Recorders or United or um, Village Recorders or Sunset Sound, those rooms, they're really iconic studios that... Um, their history is so profound that they really do maintain them. Henson Studios, which was originally A&M Studios. I've never had issues. You usually, if you're going to have any kind of issues, it's kind of like the B-level studios where, you know, they really haven't spent, you know, the, the resources to, to really have it put together properly. Um, and they don't necessarily have a, a great uh, group of technicians maintaining the room. Uh, we used to have maybe more issues back in, in analog days when you were dealing with really having to align machines and dealing with a lot of the technical side of recording where most stuff at this point is is all computer you know so right. that you're not really but there's more and more there's people really kind of having a a, a desire to, to 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 visit the the old days and so they're you know a lot of those big studios still have you know 16 and 24 track machines that are always maintained and they're ready to be used and uh the older generation of engineers um are the ones who really know that i mean it's it's kind of weird you know you go through this period like in the 80s where it was all starting to go towards just plugins and stuff and you had a new generation of engineers doing that and then all of a sudden people would go i think i want to use live drums on this project and the guy's sitting there going i've never mic'd a drum in my life you know, i know how to i know how to plug in computer drums and all that that's no problem and all of a sudden you know projects were calling some of the old uh, engineers who were put out to pasture a, a little bit and suddenly they were the guys that were working because people wanted to hear you know amps mic'd and drums mic'd properly and how do you how do you really mic an acoustic piano and all that. So it's gone kind of full circle. You know, that pendulum is always swinging back and forth. And, you know, it's when you catch it. Um, so uh, but I've never really I've never really had major disasters. I've worked on some projects where there was maybe something really went down and they would send to say, go out for a long lunch. <laughs> um, you know, instead of, you know, plowing through now, you know, they the first thing they would say is, is everybody cool tonight? Or does anybody have anything after this? And if everybody says no, they would say, well, look, just come back in a couple hours. And uh, they would get people to start doing technical work in the studio to fix whatever was going on. But generally, it's not an issue. Okay. It's, uh, they're, they're pretty well maintained. And one thing, you know, I was talking about strings and my bass. Um, one thing I, I want to also acknowledge is the amp company that I've been working with for many, many years is called Euphonic Audio. 
and uh, EA amps, and they're they're based in New Jersey, and uh, that I use basically the same rig um, with Phil Collins that I use with Lyle Lovett that I used with James Taylor and Carol King on our uh, reunion tour. Um, when I, I same rig I used with Toto. Um, their stuff is really great, and uh, I, I love it. And I've got three different setups. I've got one for like the big gigs, like those, and then I have a combo amp that I use in the studio. And then when I work with people like Judith Owen, where we're doing smaller venues, I have a, a little little rig I can actually put in a shoulder bag, and uh, and it kicks ass. It's yeah. it's really good. So uh, I've been really happy with those guys, uh, and uh, they're, they're really a wonderful amp company. That's my my go-to amp rig. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Um, my next one is, the, okay, so, yeah. I, so I see your beard, right? And Where? Uh, Where? <laughs> right. I don't know, man. Where's it? Yeah. But um, how long have you been growing that out? Because I, I saw your pictures back in the 70s and you had, to, you had it started, right? Yeah, I've been. I've actually had a beard since um, nineteen. I, I stopped. I haven't seen my upper lip since I got my high school diploma in nineteen sixty six. Wow. Yeah. So I've had it a long time. The big difference is there's all those old pictures of it where it was all dark. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then over the years it gets a little salt and pepper, and then the next thing you know, pepper's gone, and you got a, a pile of salt. <laughs> I know, but it's always funny because I mean, I'm, when I'm out and about, then people yell. CC Top, Oak Ridge Boys, you know, Gandalf. Or and Santa all. Claus or something, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. But I, I, I've, you know, uh, I, I've, it became a signature thing. It's nothing and I, I, that I did fully intending uh, to do. But I just, it's just the way I've always been. And I was lucky. I kind, kind of come from Eastern European Russian stock. And so I started shaving when I was really young, which worked out great for me because uh, when I was like 14, 15 years old, summertime would come and I would grow like a little iron jaw and a mustache. I could go play adult clubs without being carded. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I was oh, making, all, the, the, yeah, I was making yeah. the circuits of jazz clubs here in Los Angeles um, that were like adult, you know, only adults could go into those places and I, and nobody ever gave me any hassle about it. So it kind of worked out in my favor. Right. Yeah. Uh, the reason why I, I asked you that, cause uh, your website is, uh, LaylandScolarsBeard.com. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had to do that because when I did the book, I was going to have to create a website. And, right. um, so I went, I looked up, I went to get LaylandScolar.com. Somebody owns it. I went to get LeeScolar.com. Somebody owns that. And I thought, hell, I'm not going to go to somebody and pay him a bunch of money for my name. So I sat and thought about it. And I said, I'm just going to make it LeelandScolarsBeard.com. And that was available. So <laughs> it worked out. Well, I guess the reason why they bought it is they were hoping you would come and, you know, buy it from them. And I guess that's yeah. what many people do nowadays, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it sucks. But, yeah, right. But um, I find that with, like, it's amazing because you have uh, a couple items on there for sale. Um, one of them is the book, and I want to ask you about the book. Yeah. But, okay, so it's called Everybody Loves Me uh, with your picture on it. And I find that kind of kind of uh, unique because inside the book you have everybody flipping you off. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a finger of love. Right, yeah. yeah. That, uh, so that was, was the guy asking, what was your... 
um, idea going if, for a book in the first place, and why did you have everybody, you know, give you that lovely, lovely gesture? Okay, I'll try. I'll try to make it make it succinct here. Um, when I was on the road with Phil Collins in 2004, we were doing the first Spinal Farewell tour. Now there was talk on that tour that Phil was going to retire at the end of the tour. He was kind of just done. I think he had a Genesis tour to do right after that. And then he was going to call it quits, um, which he, he ended up doing up to a couple of years ago when he decided to come out of retirement and we did the not dead yet tour. But when we were doing that, the tour in 2004, um, I had been, they had gotten me a base tech for the tour. Now, normally I've really never had techs, on the road. I like doing my own gear and everything. And this guy came super qualified and I didn't have much for him to do. So we would joke around all the time. He would just look at me and he'd go, what am I, what do you need? And I go, nothing. So he would be helping like the percussionist or the singers or different people. I mean, he helped me, but it wasn't, I think he came from a tour where there was a bass player who had like 10 basses that he wanted new strings every day and all that kind of stuff. So he was pumped and ready to work. So at the end of the tour, the thought of Phil retiring, I went, man, we had a crew from people all over the world and the band was kind of from everywhere. And I thought, I may never see a lot of these people again if this is actually the end. So um, I, I decided just to take a picture of everybody and make a little folder in my computer just as for my memories. Well, as luck would have it, the very first person I go up to was Steve, my bass tech, and he's working on his laptop. And I said, hey, Steve, give me a smile. And he, without stopping typing, he just went. <laughs> and I, I took the picture and I looked at it and I went, ooh, this is actually pretty cool. So I went and I got Phil and his manager. I got everybody in the band, everybody in the crew, truck drivers, bus drivers. And I had about 150, 150 people. Let me shut that phone off here. Um, Sorry. Um, I ended up with about 150 pictures and I tucked it away, just put it all away. And it was all people flipping me off. Uh, then a couple of years later, I did the first time I went out on the road with Toto. Um, and I thought that was pretty cool with Phil's thing. So I got, you know, Luke and everybody in the band to flip me off on that one. And it got up to then about 250 pictures. And when it gets into that kind of numbers, it, it becomes something different. It's a different kind of collection. Right. So everywhere I went then, I was just telling people, hey, come on, flip me off. You know, I'd be on an airplane and get the whole compartment to flip me off on the plane or whatever. Uh, on sessions, uh, as I would meet people in different locations. And, so, and uh, as time went on, the next thing I know, I had over 12,000 photographs of, of people. Wow. And... Um, I was at a, 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 a party, kind of a backyard get-together here in Pasadena. There's a, a really world-renowned artist who lives here named Kenton Nelson, and he has these get-togethers with a bunch of different people he finds interesting in his backyard. Um, and so we, I went over there, and there was a guy named uh, Blue, uh, his nickname is Blue, Tremarchi, and uh, he has a, a, a company called Art Alliance, and they do all kinds of artwork and different things. And he and I sat and talked that evening, and I told him about the pictures. And he said, do a book. You know, everybody's bugged you to do this book forever, but you don't have time. But we had just hit the pandemic at this right. point. And all of a sudden, he said, you got time. Let's, let's do it. And, and I, I gave him a hard drive with all the pictures on it. 
And we both started going through it, just kind of honing down because I left all the pictures. So it was really hard to break 12,000 pictures down to 6,000 pictures. Um, so, but he um, helped me do the whole layout with the book and it was actually his idea for the title. Um, I had a, I had a couple of other ideas and he goes, how about everybody loves me? And I went, okay, let's, let's do it. And, um, so it, it kind of took on a life of its own, and uh, but we spent a lot of time. I mean, we, we put a lot of effort into this book, the cover, that padded cover, um, even the box that it's delivered in uh, was specially made for this, and the quality of the paper and ink and stuff in it. Even doing like when you open the book, those those first you know thing you see before the book starts, it, it could have been white paper, but we filled it with all the finger, you know, the pictures that weren't actually in the book. Um, so it's been a, a, a hell of a journey and I'm self-published, so I'm doing everything myself. Right. Uh, and it's been hard work, I, I, I assure you. Um, and I've still got a warehouse with a mountain of books in it. And actually in about, um, I, I mean, I, I don't know, this is a new world to me, but I'm not sure if you're familiar with NFTs, the non-fungible yes. tokens. Well, the book is about to become trading cards. Uh, NFTs, and it, we're a couple of weeks from releasing that. So, uh, you know, I'm constantly looking at all kinds of new things to do with it. But the book was a ball, and 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 I did it intentionally, where I didn't have like a section of celebrities and this and that. I, to me, it's a book about humanity. Everything, right, right. And 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 for me, there's a a few ways of doing this. Fine. That's it. There's infinite ways of looking at a face when somebody does it. And to me, the thing I love in the book is just looking at expressions on people's faces when you say, oh, flip me off. And you, know, you, get, you get the entire cross-section of humanity from people that are hiding to people that are, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's really fun to me. Everybody who's gotten it is, just goes, I love this book. I keep it on my coffee table. And when people come over, they're all going crazy looking through it and stuff. So it's been a real, real, real fun project. It was a lot of work and a lot of effort to do this, but I'm very, very proud of uh, what we came up with. It's a, it's a, a goofy subject matter, but you know, it's nothing that there, there's nothing angry or um, mean spirited about it all at right. all because no, yeah. everybody was just after they realized what was going on where it's like totally into it and i've got everybody from a nun in there uh to um one of the very last pictures in the book was my junior high school music teacher who turned me on to bass and i hooked up with him uh, a few years back before he passed away from cancer and i got a shot of him and i, I wanted to honor him in the book because he, he, he gave me an amazing direction in my life. Yeah. Uh, uh, I was, I, I was looking through it and, um, one picture stood out with, with to me the most is, um, um, I'm so happy that, uh, you got a picture of the, uh, I think it was Highwaymen, you know, um, uh, yeah, with Willie and Merle and Chris. Yeah. With, yeah. Before, before Merle, you know, went away. Um, yeah, yeah so that was can... that was backstage at the Grammy Awards. Um, we were we were performing, and they they brought in Blake Shelton to fill in the fourth seat. But uh, right, but to me, cash, right? he, he wouldn't be in that picture. Those were the guys. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and 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 I have 
individual shots of all of them. I've got individual shots of Willie and Merle and Chris because I've worked, I've known them all forever and I've worked with them individually. But when the three of them are backstage, I just went, dudes, <laughs> come on and got them. I, and the thing that's cool on, on that page, when you're looking at that, the opposite page to that is my parents. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. So kind of, I like having my folks out there with those maniacs because my folks were all, nuts right? as they were. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, because uh, the first time I heard about the book, we interviewed Scott, Scott Page from Florida. Yeah. And he couldn't wait to tell me about your book. And I'm like, I have to give it out. This is so amazing, you know. Um, yeah, Scotty, Scotty really enjoys it. And Scott's, you know, well represented in it. <laughs> yeah, and, and he also in, uh, um, gave us information about NFT stuff. Yeah. So we really learned yeah. a lot from him. It's pretty um, exciting. I mean, it's a it's a it's a strange world that we've entered into with this virtual world. But um, I'm going to the artwork that was available on the book site, my drawings and paintings. They're going they're going to also be NFTs. And then I've got the T-shirts with my beard on them and all that kind of stuff going on. So it's it's I, I, I was never I, I laugh about it. I go, I was never really cut out for retail. You know, I'm just a bass player. You know, I just like going touring and recording. So all of a sudden, all that took was taken away. So I had to look at options. And, uh, you know, between that and the YouTube and all that stuff, it's been an incredibly busy year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one more question about the book. Is, yeah. Uh, what, what kind of padding, padding is the cover? Because I find it very enlightening that with a different... Um, fabric, I guess you would call it for the cover. Um, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, this was something that Blue showed me uh, in his office. He had another book that had this this kind of a cover on it, um, and I'm not sure exactly how this thing is made or anything. But it's a nice book to hold. Yeah. I mean, it's really cushy yeah. and stuff, and, and I really loved it because I thought if this was probably the only book I'm ever going to do in my life, and if I'm going to do one, just do it as good as you can. I mean, it's not like I had monks doing an illuminated, illuminated manuscript or, you know, with right. gold, gold leaf and stuff. But for what it is, I think this is as good a book as I could have ever made. And it's and it's a big ass book. It weighs six pounds. It's not like a pamphlet or, you know, a little. So it's a it's a handful. But it's just it, to me, it's just it's there because we're in really dark times. And I wanted to have something that was fun right. for people. We all need something that's fun in your life. Right now. Um, but you mentioned the shirt. You can buy the shirt at LelandScolarsBeard.com. Okay. Yeah. It, it's, if you go to LelandScolarsBeard.com, it's got the book. It's got these T-shirts the shirt, right. that are really good, really good quality shirts. With but we've, it's got. It looks like you're wearing, you know, my beard from here down on it. And I get all these guys that bought it, and they're showing me at their gigs, you know, wearing it and stuff. And then I. When I was in college, I was an art major, so I've got a, drawings and paintings in there that we've done, like, really, really museum-quality, limited-edition prints of. And if anybody wants those, I've, I've shipped a bunch of those, and people are sending me pictures of them framed in their houses and stuff. So it's pretty thrilling. That's what you I know, wanted to talk, talk to you about, man. You are on the ball with, uh, with uh, transitioning. <laughs> um, uh, so... The website uh, has various paintings of subjects that range from portraits to musicians to collages. To, to collages. Uh, so, when yeah. did you start painting, and how does how does music affect 
your opinion, or or or, or does it really? I think any. I, I think when you're dealing with the arts, I think it all affects each other. It's really a. Um, when you get into that part of your brain, it's a pretty magical place to to visit, and uh, so I. Uh, uh, um, I, I think it all it, it, it all affects each other. You know, art and music and, and all, all of the arts really are really they tend to come together like that. And uh, it's uh, it's just, you know, creative juices. Right. More than anything. So let's take a time machine back in time. OK. When did you first hear? Oh, my beard's gone. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, right. I just got it. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's awesome. It took me a while, but I got it right. Uh, um, so, when did you first hear music, and and like, how did it stand out to you? Uh, you know, I was fortunate. I think I grew up in a household um, where music was a big part of it. Not so much from the standpoint of playing, because um, my my mom could play a little piano, and my dad could kind of honk a few notes on a saxophone that would make me cry. Um, but but they had a really extensive and eclectic record collection. So, you know, they had an old Magnavox, you know, hi-fi, and uh, we would just listen and have music playing all the time from classical to contemporary of the period um, to jazz and, and you sort of name it, and it was there. And um, so I, I feel really fortunate that, that I was surrounded with a, a musical environment. And the thing that actually got me to be involved in music was as a kid, there was a, there was a pianist named Liberace um, who was, uh, I mean, he was kind of like, he became what Elton wished he, he could have been in his like right. He became, he was like one of the biggest stars of oh, Vegas. Yeah. He would come out in all these outfits and all this. But when he had his TV show, when I was a little kid, um, it was just him at the piano in a tuxedo with a candelabra and just playing music and telling stories and stuff. And I used to sit with my parents and watch that show. And I became totally enamored with piano at that point. And we had a piano in the house. And by the time I was five, I was studying piano. And I was kind of the proverbial sort of child prodigy uh, with it. By the time I was about eight years old, I had won awards from the Hollywood Bowl Association and different things like that. Um, so when I went into junior high school, when I was 12 years old, I kind of assumed I'd be the piano player, you know, because that's what I'd been groomed for. And the uh, gentleman who's the last page of my book, uh, he said, we have a lot of piano players. We need a string bass player. And uh, I said, I kind of really didn't even know what he was talking about. I mean, I knew piano. I mean, my world was immersed in piano. And he pulled out an old K upright from the back room, this blonde um, bass, and uh, showed me how to hold it. And I plucked one note on it and felt that vibration run through me. And I just looked at him. I said, let's do it. And I, st I stopped piano at that point and just focused on bass. And that became the rest of my life. Yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah. So, once again, I, I was on your YouTube channel, and I was so invested in one of the videos you talked about, Dolly Parton. Um, I think you posted it last week. Uh, I did it actually um, or, yesterday. Oh, yesterday. Yes, yes, yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. Um, 
but but I but I wanted to ask you this question because in there you said you would um you would love to work with her again, you know, and I and and uh so looking back at all the artists you worked with ever, uh can you give me three artists you would drop everything right now and just go work with them again without question? Um, well, certainly, um, you know, I, I love my relationship with Phil Collins. You know, if, if Phil wanted to go out, I would be out working with Phil, like at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't, I haven't worked with, uh, James Taylor or Jackson Brown, who are both out on the road right now. I haven't worked with James since we did the, uh, Troubadour reunion tour with Carol King a while back, but either of those guys, I love their music. It's, it was great to play with them. And I also really, I had the greatest time playing with Toto. I mean, I, I would jump back into that one again. Um, but it, it's really hard to say because there's been so many thousands of artists, you know, and, and most of them, I've really, I, I feel very, I'm not going to say blessed. I feel fortunate that I've worked with so many great people during the course of my my career that almost any of them, if they called me up to do something, I would, I would jump at it because I really enjoyed working with them. So it's not like, um, a few people are, are standouts because we, uh, cause it, it, we took it to another level. It, it's like, um, I love playing with Lyle Lovett and he just called me and asked me if I would do his summer tour next year. Nice. And, and I'm, I I'm holding off on him at this point only because we're still not sure what's going to happen with the immediate family. Right. And everything's kind of predicated on that. If we're not working, then I'm going to go out with Lyle, you know, for the summer. Um, but, uh, you know, everybody's is special and unique in their own way musically. So it's always really great to, get involved with them. If, if we could have put our band barefoot servants back together that we had in the nineties, um, I would do that in a second. It was one of the most enjoyable bands I've ever, uh, experienced with John butcher. Um, who was to me is one of the great rock and roll singer, guitar players and Ben Schultz and, and Ray Brinker. And we did two albums together with barefoot servants, but right now my focus really is with the immediate family. And, uh, we've got the album coming out, uh, and there was that documentary movie, The Wrecking Crew. Um, well, Denny Tedesco, who made that movie, is making a movie about us. And it's actually in being edited right now. We're probably about a month away from seeing a rough cut of the movie. And um, it's going to be it should be out early next year. And during the pandemic, I mean, we've got this new album coming out on the 27th. Well, during the pandemic we went back into jackson brown's studio and we cut another album oh, so we've got we so we got an album ready for when the release of the movie comes and we'll have another um album coming out then too so um there's a lot of stuff going on the the, the biggest the biggest drag and, and and it's not a personal thing it's a drag for every kind of musician or any actually any human being i know was that for us, after all these years of being the guys that were supporting acts, you know, there was the artist and then we were the band that played with them. Now we're finally the artist and we managed to have it just the time where everything goes down the crapper <laughs> and we can't go on the road and we can't promote and we can't. Do... So at, at this point, we're, we're now just going to we've got gigs booked starting in November. Um, on the West Coast first and then the East Coast. And we're just keeping our fingers crossed that things don't get really terrible and dark again 
and uh, and those gigs get lost. Um, but the, the most important thing right now is people's safety, and uh, and I don't want to see us in a. I mean, we've we we created our little bubble. Everybody got their shots in the band, so we've been rehearsing and playing together. We're ready to go. Um, but you know, when I see these things like Lollapalooza, or you see like Sturgis and all these things. You go, man, as long as people are going to act like that, I don't know when this is ever going to end because, uh, you know, they're all just talking about all this stuff is, you know, I, 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 I've talked about this a few times where I go, you know, there's people that say to me, uh, I'm not going to get vaccinated because I don't know what's in it. I don't trust it. And I look at them and I go, I knew you when you were doing heroin, when you were doing blow, when you were, you know, somebody came up and gave you a handful of pills, you'd eat them all without even thinking about it. You're like, so then you the get, then you'd get drunk and go to McDonald's. Right. But now you're now you're concerned about what's in something. I don't really give me a break. Yeah. But uh, we're all at the mercy of that until till we can get this behind us and we can start opening up and and doing things. I mean, Genesis is supposed to be starting a big tour. And I'm not sure if they're going to be able to do it or not. Uh, it starts in Europe, but Europe keeps getting shut down again. And yeah. uh, I've got I did, I've been working on an album with a guy named Brett McKenzie in New Zealand. Who's, there's a group called Flight of the Concords um, in in New Zealand. They're like one of the biggest acts. It's two guys, and they're like a comedy act, but they're also a musical act. And he said, "Man, the minute COVID hit New Zealand, the prime minister shut New Zealand down, and it's like if they have." They're just closing the borders of New Zealand for this week because one case appeared. Oh, and they, you know, I mean, they, they're, you know, it's an island and there's a small population compared to America and places, but still they've approached it from a standpoint of like really acting on it all. And everybody jumped on the bandwagon and there's very few cases down there of it, you know, so for the most part, Life is kind of still normal for them. They haven't really had to close all, you know, all the restaurants and music venues and all that, but it's a different mindset. Yeah, yeah. So Nice. Um, so, so we have two more questions for you, if you don't sure. mind. Anything you want. Cool, cool. Thank you for this. Um, so I've been listening to you all my life, and I didn't realize it until recently. But uh, you worked on some of the greatest TV show themes ever. Um, some examples of the 18, Magna P.I., Elf, The Greatest American Hero, and others to name. Uh, so, was the theme already written when you were called to record the beast parts, or did you work with the composer on them? Um, uh, most of the TV stuff, um, like film, like movies, um, is all written out in advance now what usually happens with me like all those tv shows most of that was composed by mike post and um and and, and a lot of that was when his partner pete carpenter was still alive um and i started with the rockford files was the first show and then simon and simon and a team and hill street blues and all those shows um what would happen uh, they would have the stuff written out but then they would say kind of add your personality to it you know, because notes are very specific, but there's nuances that are nebulous. And so Mike would always just say, you know, kind of, you know, I mean, here's this is the outline. This is what it has to be to fit into what it's going to do in, within the confines of the show. But he said, you know, if you feel like throwing a little something in or some glisses or things like that, um, feel free to do it. And if he, if, he, if he didn't dig it, 
he would just say so. You know, I mean, I, I always I always tell people, I said, you know, my mantra kind of is everything I do is etched in mud. You know, because if you if I'm playing something and somebody wants to hear something different, you know, tell me. I'm I'm happy to make changes. You know, I I don't know everything. I I always appreciate it when I'm like working on an album project or something and I come up with a part and somebody goes, Could you try this? And I go, Oh, that's great. I wouldn't have thought of that. That's a really cool idea. And I tend to try to log those things away for maybe I'll find myself in a similar groove or situation at another point and go, yeah, and I'll draw on that thing. So, uh, so, but film is even a little more restrictive because most of that, you know, you're really looking at specific cuts and everything's, you know, pretty methodically um, put together. But uh, I'm happy to do those dates, boy. There's nothing like not having to think. Right. Like you, you just sit down and there it is in front of you. You just have to be a good reader. And, 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 and I've, since I started piano at five, you know, I've always been a good reader. So uh, that's not an issue for me. Right, right. Uh, so our last question for you is, um, yeah. this podcast is called When Words Fail, Music Speaks, right? And that can't be further from the truth. So is there any song that you can think of right now that, uh, that speaks to you and moves you in, so, in, so, in such a way that you can't explain it, how, how it makes you feel to anybody else? Oh, God. Um, I think that's kind of one of the hardest things uh, in, in, in terms of music. I think that's one of the hardest things because um, music and the arts are so subjective that it's really hard. I, mean, I've, I, I always think about this, like you go to an art museum and you could be standing in front of a, a, a painting and the person on your left is crying. They're so moved by it. And the person on your right is going, what a piece of crap. <laughs> and, they're, and they're both absolutely right. Right. You know, and with music, there's, there are, it, it, to, to verbalize music, I find very hard. It's, it's one thing because when you're listening to it, you're in a different headspace. There's a different part of your body and your mind that are working. But if you try to actually explain how you're feeling, uh, the, uh, the uh, other people might not quite understand it the way you are. It's, it's, it's hard to put words to those kind of feelings because they really are pretty esoteric. Yeah. It's a thing. So hard to say, hard to say that one. That's a, it's a good question, but really hard to answer. Yeah. Cause um, music moves people in, in, so, in so many ways and it's different for everybody. You know? Cause when we're yeah. jail, music does speak, you know, and that's true for everything, you know? Um, so. Well, you you find yourself like nowadays. I mean, I find a lot of, especially like if I'm dealing with like a lot of people that are, are there, my age and maybe you know ten years younger or something that that they sit there and they go, oh man, all this new music is just crap, man. It's not like mine when I was a kid. And I kind of look at them, I go, there's a lot of great music now. You just have to go find it, you know. And there was a lot of crap when we were kids, you know. I mean, that's the whole thing that they they've now gotten rid of all the the memories and they've only honed in on those few things that they remember from those days and when they hear them suddenly they're like teenagers or in their 20s again and they're they're comfortable but i go man there are, there are so many fine young artists coming along my only issues really um with music really tends to be more on the music business side where you you know you can make great music but what happens to it after you've made it um, getting people to discover it, to, you know, to hear it. Because in the old days, as the old days, um, yeah, you you were signed to labels and and uh, 
and the like. And you kind of knew you were going to get screwed a bit by in the, in the whole process. But they had ways of getting you on the radio, getting airplay, getting gigs, doing all this stuff, where now it's there's so many fine artists out there that just finding an opportunity to, to show their music is hard. I used to go into clubs and sit and jam. I mean, anybody who wants to play in a club, I think now has to pay to play. Right. They're not making any money. Um, so it's a, it's a tough time. I never want to discourage new artists um, from, from pursuing this, but it's a tough slog um, to do this. I mean, the odds are, are stacked really against you. But I, I always equate it to, um, like, say there's a Powerball uh, going on, and the uh, the odds of against you winning is like 175 million to one. But the next day on TV, there they've had the Powerball drawing, and there's some knucklehead with this big cardboard check, and they've won. So somebody in this business is going to prevail and is going to have success and all that. It's just the odds really are more inclined to say you're not going to make it at this end. You should, I always say, just enjoy it. And I've done lots of albums with people that have ended up doing things in other careers, but they've come back to do music, you know, as just something, maybe they've made enough money where they can kind of self-finance going in the studio for a couple of days and actually committing to, to tape or whatever, something they've been passionate about their whole lives, but not successful because I've done records with people that are oral reconstructive surgeons and own medical supply companies. I had one guy I worked in, on an album with and I asked him what he normally did. And he's, and he and his brother own Skechers shoes. And, uh, you know, so there's all kinds of things that are going on. You know, to me, this is like a, it's a fascinating world in music. It's just, it's a matter of, really going in with your eyes wide open and, and it, not everything is American Idol and the voice, you know, cause so I've worked with a lot of those people who have won those shows and some of them are really good artists, but a lot of them have never experienced. They've never, you know, paid the dues as we always say, you know, of, of playing all the crappy gigs that you play during your life to hone your skills and to try to, um, kind of create your sound and all that. They've just have maybe an innate, um, ability that's pretty good, but a lot of them don't handle the uh, what happens afterwards very well because they've gone from loading dock to star, right? And you know, nowhere in between. Well, for every um, all of the listeners who want to want more of Leland stuff, you can go to LelandScalarsBeard.com or you can find him on Twitter under Leland Scalar and on YouTube under Leland Scalar. Yeah, please, please come. Uh, the YouTube channels where I, I've today, I think, was my 670th video um, that I, I've not, I have not missed a day since March of last year. Today, I was showing stuff I did with Julio Iglesias. And um, but the thing is, uh, in the in, in the confines of my YouTube channel, there's also a clubhouse you can join. And that's uh, where I do two live streams a month. And um, and do a one on one day where I do Skype and FaceTimes with people who sign up on that. And in the clubhouse, there's also a gift store. So there's like a bunch of t different kinds of T-shirts and mugs and all that kind of stuff there. So it's a, it's a lot of fun to a lot of people. So that's just go to my YouTube channel and subscribe and uh, 
there's a backlog. I mean, there's so much information and music on that. It's really turned into a, a passion with me doing this. So, um, we just wanted to say thank you very much for coming on, sir. And this was really an honor for me to talk to you today. And I hope we can be friends afterwards. <laughs> After oh, absolutely. No, uh, anytime, if you ever... Yeah. How could I not dig a show where the host hat matches the background of your screen? Yes. I mean, geez, Jesus, you are so cool. It's just ridiculous, <laughs> you know. I mean, as close as I am, is I got a white beard and I've got some white trim in the background oh, on the man. wall. <laughs> you, you've got it down completely. Oh so. no, no uh, man, I'm still learning. I'm still learning, sir. And you know all the internet as a business. So, uh, yeah. So we really do uh, honestly thank you very much for coming on, and I hope to have you back sometime soon. Oh, uh, anytime you want, I'll be happy to come back and visit with you. Yes, sir. Uh, okay, James, you take care and stay safe. You too, man. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye.